Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Martin Rees. Martin is a well-known astronomer and the former president of the Royal Society, a fellow and former master of Trinity College, Cambridge, and emeritus professor of cosmology and astrophysics at Cambridge. He's also a member of the UK House of Lords. And he's the author of several books, most recently, If Science is to Save Us, which is the principal topic of today's conversation. We talk about the importance of science and scientific institutions, the paradoxical provisionality of science, and the strange relationship we have to scientific authority. We talk about genius as a scientific and sociological phenomenon, civilizational risk, pandemic preparedness, artificial intelligence, nuclear weapons, the far future, the Fermi problem, where is everybody out there in the cosmos, the prospect of a great filter explaining the apparent absence of everybody, the multiverse, string theory, exoplanets, large telescopes, steps toward improving scientific institutions, wealth inequality, atheism, the conflict between science and religion, and this provokes a bit of a debate between us. Martin was not a fan of what the new atheists were up to, nor is he a fan of my version of moral realism. So we talk about rationality and ethics. Unfortunately, we had a few technical difficulties and ran out of studio time, so the debate didn't go on for as long as it might have, but um, we got about 30 minutes there where we disagreed about religion and ethics a good bit, and I enjoyed it. And now I bring you Martin Rees. I am here with Martin Rees. Martin, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So uh, you, you have a new book, If Science is to Save Us, which brings together many of your concerns about existential risk and the, the importance of science, you know, the promise of it, uh, along with our failures to fully actualize that promise. And uh, so I want to talk about this. I want to talk about existential risk, which you've written about before. Mm-hmm. And also just the inability of our politics and our institutions to properly grapple with it. But uh, before we jump into those topics, but perhaps you can summarize your, your intellectual background and, and your life in science. How, how would you summarize the, the kinds of topics you've focused on? Yes. Well, I've been very lucky in that I've worked most of my career in astrophysics. And uh, I'm lucky in that when I started, it was an exciting time when we had the first evidence of the Big Bang, uh, the first evidence for black holes, etc. And uh, I was lucky to be able to write some of the first papers on those topics. And uh, I always advise students starting now to pick a subject uh, where new things are happening, so that you could be the first person to do new things, rather than just uh, filling in the gaps that the old guys left. And so I was lucky there, and I've been even more lucky in that the subject has remained Fruitful. And so I would describe my work as being phenomenology mainly, trying to make sense of all the phenomena discovered through observations on the ground and in space. So that's been my main work. But when I got to the age of 60, I felt I ought to uh, diversify a bit because uh, in my subject in particular, it was taken over rather by uh, computational modeling. And I knew I would never be adept at doing that. So I felt I ought to do something else. And I therefore took on some other duties 
outside my academic field, more in politics. I became head of the biggest college in Cambridge. I became president of the Royal Society, which is our National Academy of Sciences. Mm. And I even became a member of the House of Lords. So I had a wide experience in my 60s of doing this sort of thing. And that really uh, is uh, the background to why I wrote a book which has this rather broad coverage. Nice, nice. Well, um, it's a wonderful career, and, and it's fantastic to have someone who has seen so much scientific progress uh, as well as its um, failure, you know, both the successes and failures of it to permeate the culture and affect policy. To, it's, it's just it's great that you are um, where you are and, and spending as much time as you are currently in furthering the public understanding of science, because your, your most recent books have definitely done that. Before we jump into questions of existential risk and the other topics I outlined, I, I have a, a first question and concern that's more foundational with respect to how we do science, how we, how we understand its progress, how we communicate that progress to non-scientists. And it, it's around this, the issue of the provisionality of science and the, 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 really the perpetual provisionality of it. There are no final, final answers, really. And this goes to you know, the philosophy of science and you know, the Popperian observation that we, we never really finally prove something true. We, we simply prove false theories false, mm-hmm. and we just hew to the best current explanation. But there's, this does throw up a kind of paradox, because what we have in science, in the culture of science, and in just the epistemology of it, is a is a fundamental distrust of authority, right? We don't we don't slavishly respect authority in science, and yet the reality is that you know to a first approximation, scientific authority matters. You know, we, no one has time to run all of the experiments going back to the you know the origins of of any specific science themselves. We're, we're constantly relying on colleagues to have done things correctly, to not be perpetuating fraud, to not be lying to us. And yet, the truth is, you know, even a Nobel laureate is only as good as his last sentence. If his, if his last sentence didn't make any okay. sense, well, then a graduate student or anyone else can say, that doesn't make any sense, and, and everyone's on the, on the same ground, epistemologically speaking. So how do, you, how do you think about how we treat authority and the provisionality of science, uh, both in science and, and in the communication of it? Well, look, you're quite right to- of course, that science is a progressive enterprise, it's a social and collective enterprise, and we can never be sure we've got the final truth. Uh, but I think we've got to not be too skeptical. We've got to accept that uh, some things are almost incontestable, like Newton's laws of motion, for instance, and also that in many areas of uh, importance socially, it is prudent to listen to the experts rather than to the random person even though the experts are fallible. And I think people talk about the idea of revolutions overthrowing things. Thomas Kuhn is the famous mm-hmm. philosopher who did this. And I think um, there are one or two revolutions. Quantum theory was one. But for instance, it's not true in any sense that Einstein overthrew Newton. Newton is still fine. It's good enough to program all um, spacecraft going in our solar system. But what Einstein did was got a theory that gave a deeper understanding 
and had a wider applicability. But Newton's laws within a certain range are still okay. So one can't say that Newton was falsified. We can say that there was a step forward. And if you think of physics again, then our hope would be that there may be some uh, theory unifying all the laws of nature, the four basic forces, and that will incorporate Einstein's theory as a special case. So it's really a progressive incorporation and broadening of our understanding. How do you think about the quasi-myth of the lone genius in science and, and what that has done to the perception of science? I say quasi-myth because it, <laughs> it's not truly a myth. I mean, you just mentioned Newton, and, and when you think about the progress mm. he made in about 18 yes, months yes. locked in a garret, uh, you know, avoiding the plague, he seemed to have done a, you know, about a, a century at least of, of normal <laughs> scientific work. But how do you think about genius and the, the idea that we should be shining the light of admiration on specific scientists for their breakthroughs and, ignore the, and very often ignoring the fact that someone else would have made that breakthrough about 15 minutes later if the first person hadn't? Yes. Well, of course, that is true. And uh, the difference between science and the arts is that if you're an artist, then anything you create is distinctive. It's your work. It may not last. Whereas in the case of science, if you make a contribution, then it will last probably if you're lucky, um, but it'll be uh, just one brick in the edifice. So it'll lose its individuality in that Mm. in almost all cases, uh, it would have been done by someone else if you hadn't done it. Uh, So that's why there is this difference. And it's also why science is a social activity and why those who cut themselves off may be able to do some kind of uh, work in, say, pure mathematics by themselves. But science uh, involves following developments across a fairly broad field. And in fact, in my book, I discuss this contrast in telling us why, in the case of many artists and composers, their last works are thought their greatest. And that's because once they were influenced when young by whatever the tastes were then, it's just internal development. They don't need to absorb anything else. Whereas no scientist could go on for 40 years just thinking by themselves without having to absorb new Mm. techniques all the time. And it's because scientists get, and everyone gets less good at absorbing new ideas as they get older, that there are very few scientists of whom we would say that their last works are their greatest. Hmm. Interesting. And that's why I decided to do something else when I was 60. <laughs> that's why you, you, you looked in the mirror at <laughs> 60 and, and realized yeah. you were not going to start programming. That's, right. um, you've met a lot of uh, great scientists over the course of yes. many decades. Have you, have you ever met someone who you would unhesitatingly call a genius? I mean, someone who's just seemed in their scientific abilities or their intellectual abilities generally just to be a, you know, a standard deviation beyond all the other smart people you've had the pleasure of, of knowing? Yes, I, I think I've met some, but of course, uh, I have a chapter in my book uh, saying that Nobel Prizes may do more harm than good. And mm-hmm. that's because the people who make the great discoveries aren't the same people necessarily as those who have the deepest intellects. Right. Many of the great discoveries are made serendipitously. Uh, I think in the case of uh, astronomy, discovery of neutron stars and of the radiation from the Big Bang. Those were both discovered by people by accident, uh, by people who are not 
of any special intellectual eminence. But nonetheless, I think we would accept that there are uh, some people who do have special intellectual qualities. Of the people who I've known in my field, I would put Steven Weinberg in that class mm -hmm. as someone who obviously had uh, very broad intellectual interests and the ability to, uh, to do a great deal of work at greater variety and at a greater speed than most other people. So there are people, clearly, in every field who have special talents, but they are not necessarily the people who make the great discoveries, which may be partly accidental or opportunistic. And also, of course, they're not always the people who you want to listen to in a general context. And that's why it's a mistake if um, Nobel Prize winners are asked to pontificate on any subject which they may not be an expert on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Weinberg was wonderful. Uh, he died a few years ago, but he was um, right. Really, an, an impressive person and, and a beautiful writer too. Yes. Did you know uh, Feynman or any of these other uh, bright lights of physics? Well, I knew Feynman slightly, but uh, I knew some of these other people who were exceptional in their abilities, and of course, did keep going and didn't do just one thing. Because, uh, and I also. Uh, knew Francis Crick, for instance, who mm -hmm. clearly was a rather special intellect, and uh, mathematicians like uh, Andrew Wiles, who, mm -hmm. incidentally, he did shut himself away for seven years to do his work, but that was exceptional. Yeah, talk about a solitary effort. That was, <laughs> that was incredible. Yeah. Okay, well, let, let's talk about the fate of our species, which I think relies less on the lone genius and much more on our failure or hopefully success in solving a variety of coordination problems and getting our priorities straight uh, and actually using what we know in a way that is cooperative and global. We, we, we face many problems that are global in character and, and seem to cry out for global solutions, and yet we have a global politics. We even have a domestic politics in every country mm. that is tied to you know, short-term considerations of a sort that, that really, even if the, the existential concerns are perfectly clear, we seem unable to take them seriously because it just, it, there is no political incentive to do that. What, what, what are your, if, if you were going to list your concerns uh, mm -hmm. that go by the name of, of existential risk, yes. you know, it, it, maybe we should be a little more Capacious than existential. I mean, you know, just enormous yeah. Yeah. risk. I mean, that you know, we don't extreme need, risks. Yes, yes, yeah. There can still be a few of us left standing to suffer the the consequences of our stupidity. What What are you worried about? Well, I think I do worry about global setbacks, and the way I like to put it is, in a cosmic context, the Earth's been around for forty five million centuries, but this century is the first when one species, namely our species, can destroy its future or set back its future in a serious way, because we are empowered by technology, and we are having a heavier footprint collectively on the world than was ever the case before. And I think there are two kinds of things we worry about. One kind is the consequences of our heavier impact on nature, and this is um, climate change, loss of biodiversity, and issues like that, which are long-term concerns. And the other is the uh, fact that our technology is capable of destroying a large fraction of humanity. Well, that's been true ever since the invention of the H-bomb um, about 70 years ago. But what worries me even more is that 
new technologies, bio and cyber, etc., can have a similar effect. We know that uh, a pandemic like COVID-19 can spread globally because we are interconnected in a way we weren't in, in the past. But what is even more scary is that it's possible now to engineer viruses which would be even more virulent or more transmissible than the natural ones. And this is my number one nightmare, actually, that this may happen. And it's my number one nightmare because it's very hard to ensure how we can actually rule out this possibility. In the case of nuclear weapons, we know it needs large special purpose facilities to build them. And so the kind of monitoring and inspection which we have from the International Atomic Energy Agency can be fairly effective. But even if we try hard to regulate what's done in uh, biological laboratories, even the stage four ones, which are supposed to be the most secure ones, enforcing those regulations globally is almost as hopeless as enforcing the drug laws globally or the tax mm. laws globally, because the delinquents can be just a few individuals or a small company. And uh, this is a big worry I have, which is that I think if we want to make the world safe against that sort of concern, we've got to uh, be aware of a growing tension between three things we'd like to preserve, namely privacy, security, and freedom. And I think that privacy is going to have to go if we want mm. to ensure that someone is not clandestinely plotting something that could kill us all. So there's one, one class of threats. Yeah, can you say, well, well yeah, well, I want to talk about uh, others, but uh, can you say more on how you imagine the, the infringement uh, of privacy being implemented here? I mean, what, what, do you, what would actually help mitigate this risk? Well, obviously, uh, we've given up a lot of our privacy with uh, uh, CCTV cameras and mm. all that sort of thing. And uh, lots of what we have on the internet is probably accessible for surveillance groups. And I think we probably have to accept something like that to a greater extent than uh, certainly uh, in the US it will be acceptable now. But I think we've got to accept that these risks are very, very high and we may have to modify our behavior in that way. Yeah, well, I think there's one infringement of privacy that I don't think anyone would care about, which is for us to be monitoring the spread of pathogens increasingly closely, right? Actually just sampling the air and water and waste and, and sampling everything we can get our, our hands on so as to detect something novel and dangerous as early as possible, given that our ability to vaccinate against uh, pathogens has seems to have gotten you know much faster, if not uniformly better. Yes. Well, of course, the the hope is that the uh, technology of uh, vaccine development will accelerate, and that will uh, counteract some of these concerns. But I do think that we are going to have to worry very much about the uh, the spread of uh, not just natural pandemics that might have a much higher fatality rate than COVID nineteen but also mm. these uh, engineered pandemics, which could be even worse. And I think we've got to have some sort of surveillance in order to minimize that. And of course, the other way in which small groups are empowered is through um, cyber attacks. Yeah. In fact, I quote in, in my book from um, a uh, US Defense Department document from 2012, where they point out that a state-level cyber attack could knock out the electricity grid on the eastern coast of the United States. And if that happened, 
they say, I quote, it would merit a nuclear response. Mm. It would be catastrophic, obviously, if the electricity grid shut down even for a few days. And um, what worries me now is that it may not need a state-level actor to do that sort of thing, uh, because there's an arms race, as it were, between the empowerment of the cyber attackers and the empowerment of the cyber security people. One doesn't know which side is going to gain. Yeah, we can add AI to this this picture, which um, that's right. Which I, I know you've been concerned about. I think your the group you helped found the the Center for Existential Risk was one of the the sponsors of the that initial conference in Puerto Rico in 2015 that I was happy to to go to that, that first brought everyone into the same room to talk about the the threat or or lack thereof of general AI AGI yep. and you know we've obviously seen a, a ton of progress in recent months on narrow AI of the sort that could be presumably useful to anyone who wanted to make a mess mm-hmm. with you know cyber attacks indeed yes mm-hmm. yeah i mean so it's there is an, an asymmetry here which is intuitive i don't know if it holds across all classes of risk but it's easy to assume, and I, I, it seems like it must generally always be accurate to assume, that it's easier to break things than to fix them, or easier to make a mess than it is to clean it up. I mean, there's probably something yes. related relating to entropy here that we could generalize. Yes, but yes. how do you view these asymmetric risks? Because as you point out, nuclear risk, that the one fortuitous thing about the technology required to make you know, big bombs is that there are certain steps in the process that are hard for a single person or even a small number of people to accomplish on their own. I mean, there's just their rare materials, they're, you know, they're hard to acquire, etc. And it's more of an engineering challenge than one person can reliably take on, but not so with, you know, DNA synthesis, you know, if we fully democratize all those tools, and you can just, you know, order nucleotides in the mail, mm-hmm. and uh, not so at all with cyber and and now AI, which I guess is a bit of a surprise. I mean, AI, most of us who are worried about the development of truly powerful AI were assuming that the most powerful versions of it would be inaccessible to almost everyone for the longest time, and you'd have, you know, you'd have a bunch of researchers making the decision to you know, as to whether or not a system was safe. But now it's seeming that our most powerful AI is being developed already in the wild with everyone, you know, literally millions and millions of people given access to it on a moment-by-moment basis. Mm. Yes, that's right. That That is scary. And I think we do need to have some sort of regulation, rather like in the case of drugs. If we encourage the R&D, but intensive testing is expected before something is released on the market. And we haven't had that in the case of uh, ChatGPT and things of that kind. And I think there needs to be some discussion, some international agreements about how one does somehow uh, regulate these things so that the worst bugs can be erased before they are released to a large public. This is, of course, especially difficult in the case of uh, AI because the field is dominated to a large extent by a few multinational conglomerates. And of course, they can, as we know, evade paying proper taxation, and they can uh, 
uh, evade regulations by moving their, their, their country of residence around and all that. And for that reason, it's going to be very hard to enforce uh, regulations globally on those companies. But we've got to try. And indeed, in the last few months, there have been discussions about how this can be done. It's not just uh, academies, but, uh, uh, but bodies like the, um, the G20 and the UN and other bodies must try to think of some way in which we can regulate these. But of course, we can't really regulate them completely because 100 million people have used this uh, software within a month. So mm. it's going to be spread very, very widely. And uh, I think the only, the only point I would make to perhaps uh, be an antidote to the most scary stuff, I think the idea of, um, of a machine taking over general superintelligence is still far in the future. I mean, I'm with um, those people who think that for a long time we've got to worry far more about human stupidity than mm -hmm. artificial intelligence. Uh, and I think that's the case. But on the other hand, we do have to worry about bugs and breakdowns in these programs. And that's a problem if you become too dependent on them. If we become dependent globally on something which uh, runs um, GPS or the internet or the electricity grid network over large areas, then I worry more about the vulnerability if something breaks down and is hard to repair than I do about uh, an intentional attack. Yeah, I mean, the, the scary thing is it's easy to think about the harm that bad actors with various technologies can commit, but it's so much of our risk is the result of what can happen by accident or just inadvertently, just based mm -hmm. on human stupidity mm -hmm. or just the failure of, of antiquated systems to function properly. I mean, when you think about the risk of nuclear war, yes, it's scary that there are people like, you know, Vladimir Putin, uh, of whom we can reasonably worry, you know, whether he may mm -hmm. use nuclear weapons to prosecute his own, you know, very narrow aims. But the bigger risk, at least in, in my view, is that we, we have a, a system with truly antiquated technology, and it's just easy to see how we could stumble into a, a full-scale nuclear war with Russia by accident, by just misinformation. Mm. No, indeed. And the addition of AI to this picture is terrifying. Yes, I think it's very scary indeed. And uh, I, I think um, at least this uh, hype in the last few months has, has raised these issues on the agenda. And that's a very good thing. Because one point about getting political action or getting these things out of the political agenda is that politicians have to realize that the public care and everyone mm. now is scared about these threats. And so it will at least motivate the public, sorry, motivate politicians to do what they can to achieve some sort of uh, regulation or ensure that the greater safety of these complex systems. And uh, this is, I think, something which uh, the public doesn't recognize, really, that um, politicians, they have scientific advisors, but those advisors have rather little traction, except when there's an emergency. You know, mm. After COVID-19, they did, but uh, otherwise they don't. And incidentally, to slightly shift gears, that's one of the problems, getting serious action to uh, deal with uh, climate change and similar environmental catastrophes because they're slow to develop and long range. Yeah. And therefore, politicians 
don't have the incentive to deal with them urgently because they will happen on a timescale longer than the electoral cycle, in some cases longer than the normal cycle of business investment. But nonetheless, if we want to ensure that we don't get some catastrophic changes in the second half of the century, they do have to be prioritised. And if that's to happen, then the public has to be aware because the politicians, if voters care, will take action. And that's why in my book I point out that we scientists are, on the whole, not very charismatic or influential in general. Uh, so we depend very much on individuals who do have a much larger following. And in my book, I quote four people of a very disparate quartet who have had this effect in the climate context. The first is Pope Francis, whose encyclical in 2015 mm-hmm. got him a standing ovation at the UN, energized his billion followers, and made it easy to get the consensus at the Paris Climate Conference in 2015. So he's number one. Number two is our secular Pope David Attenborough, mm-hmm. who uh, certainly in many parts of the world has made people aware of uh, environmental damage, ocean pollution, and climate change. The third I would put is uh, Bill Gates, uh, who has um, a large following and talks a great deal of sense about technological opportunities and what's realistic and what isn't. So I think he's a positive influence. And four, we should think of Greta Thornburg, who has energized the younger generation. And I think those four between them have, in the last five years, raised these issues on the agenda so that uh, governments are starting to act about how to cut carbon emissions and uh, even business has changed its rhetoric, even if not changing its actions very much. Mm. Well, it's, it is a difficult tangle to resolve with the, the, this challenge of public messaging and leveraging the attention of uh, the, the wider world mm-hmm. against the short-term incentives that everyone feels uh, very directly. I mean, the, the thing that is going to move someone through their day well, you know, from the moment they get out of bed in the morning tends to be what they're, what they're in, you know, truly incentivized to do in the near term. And even if you were going to live by the light of the most rank selfishness, everyone seems to hyperbolically discount their own interests over the course of time. So that, which is to say, it's, it's even hard to care about one's own far future or even or the future of, of one's children to say nothing of the you know the abstract future of humanity and the you know the long term prospects of the species. Yes. yes. So it's just it, it's amazing to me. I mean even as someone who deals with these issues and you know fancies himself you know a, a clear eyed ethical voice on many of these topics, I'm amazed mm-hmm. at how little time I spend really thinking about the world that my children will inhabit when they're my age, mm. and trying to prioritize you know, my resources so as to ensure that that is the best possible world it can be. I mean, it, you know, so much of what I'm doing is you know, loosely coupled to that outcome, but it's not felt as a moral imperative in the way that responding to near-term challenges is. No. So I, I mean, maybe, maybe you can say something about the ethical importance yes. of the future and Yes, and how we should respond to the, these kinds of, of you know long tail risks that, in any given month and any given year, are not you know it's hard to argue that they're priorities because each month mm-hmm. tends to look like the last. 
and yet we know that if we can just influence the trajectory of of, uh, our progress by 1% a year, you know, 50 years from now will be totally different than if we degrade it by 1% a year. Yes, that's right. That is the problem. And of course, most people do really care about the life chances of their children and grandchildren uh, who may be alive at the end of a century. And I think most of us would agree, despite all the uncertainties in climate modeling, that there is a serious risk of a catastrophic change by the end of a century, if not by 2050. And this is something which we need to try and plan to avoid now. Uh, And it is a big ask, of course. And that's why I think um, you've got to appeal to people's concern about future generations. But of course, if we ask about how far ahead one should look, how much so-called long-termism one should go for, Mm. one then has the legitimate concern that if you don't know what the future's like and don't know what the preferences and tastes are going to be of people 50 years from now, then of course, we can't expect to make sacrifices because they may be uh, inappropriate for what actually turns out. So I think in the case of climate, we can fairly well predict what will happen if we go on as we are now. But in other contexts, things are changing so fast that we can't make these predictions. And, uh, and so the, the idea that we should uh, make sacrifice for people a thousand years from now doesn't make much sense. And in fact, in my book, I present an interesting paradox. I think about those who built cathedrals in the uh, 12th century, amazing mm. artifacts uh, that were built over a century. And uh, people invested in them and knew they would be finished in their lifetime. And they planned ahead, even though they thought the world would end in a thousand years and their spatial horizons were limited to Europe. On the other hand, today, when our time horizons are billions of years and our spatial horizons vast too, we don't plan ahead 50 years from now. That may seem a paradox, but there is a reason for it. The reason is that back in the Middle Ages, Although the overall horizon was constricted, they didn't think things would change very much. They thought the life chances of their children and grandchildren would be the same, so they were confident that their grandchildren would appreciate the finished cathedral. Whereas I think, apart from, I would guess, on climate change perhaps, and uh, biodiversity, where we don't want to leave a depleted world for our descendants, we can't really predict what people's preferences would be what be the key technologies, and therefore it's perhaps inappropriate to uh, plan in too much detail for them. So when things are changing unpredictably, then of course you have a good reason for discounting the future, but we mustn't discount it too much, especially in cases when we can be fairly confident of the risks of uh, the status quo. Yeah. Well, I would add some of the risks we've we've already mentioned. I mean, that we, we know that living year after year with these invisible dice rolling with respect to the threat of, you know, accidental nuclear war, that's just a game we shouldn't be playing, right? So if we can dial back that risk in any given year, that would be a very good thing. And so it is with Uh, the spread of uh, pandemics, you know, engineered or or natural. Let's talk about the future a little bit more, because I know you have thought about the transhuman possibilities or really inevitabilities of the future that you're saying, I think, someplace that if you go out far enough, our descendants will not only not be recognizably human, but they will just be, be unimaginably different from, from what we are now. How, how do you, what, what do you actually expect and, and, what, and what sort of time horizon 
would you give that? I mean, if, if I drop, if I could drop yes. you back on Earth ten thousand years from now, what would you, yes. what would you expect with respect to our descendants? Provided, well, I, obviously, that we don't destroy the possibility of yes. survival in in this century. Well, I'd expect significant differences, but uh, let me put this in the cosmic context. We know it's taken uh, four billion years or so for the biosphere of which we are a part today to evolve from simple beginnings in the primordial slime in the young earth. And some people tend to feel that we are the culmination of evolution, the top of the tree. But no astronomer can believe that because we know that the sun is less than halfway through its life. It's been shining for four and a half billion years, but it's got five or six more before it flares up and engulfs the inner planets. And of course, the uh, universe has far longer still, maybe going on forever. And I like to quote Woody Allen, eternity is very long, especially towards the end. We are maybe not even the halfway stage in the emergence of uh, progressively greater complexity. And I think this century is going to be crucial in that context too, because it may be the stage when indeed um, genetic modification can redesign humans, and maybe cyborgs who are partly electronic will develop, and uh, that future evolution uh, will be much faster than Darwinian natural selection. It'll be what I like to call secular intelligent design. It'll be us or, or the machines aiding us mm. designing better next generation. So the future changes, intelligence are going to be faster than the slow Darwinian ones, which have led to the emergence of humans over a few hundred thousand years. So it'd be much faster. And so it's completely unimaginable what there will be in billions of years, because there can be rapid changes on this timescale, which is fast compared to the Darwinian timescale. If I could be slightly more specific about my scenario and discuss a recent article I wrote for Mario Livio and some other things I've written, I think that the first developments of post-humans may happen on Mars. And uh, let me explain this. I, I wrote another book last year uh, with Don Goldsmith called The End of Astronauts. And mm -hmm. uh, we made the point that um, as robots get better, the need for sending humans into space is getting weaker all the time. And so I think many of us feel that uh, NASA or other public agencies shouldn't spend taxpayers' money on uh, human spaceflight especially something as expensive as trying to send people to Mars, which is hugely expensive if you want to make it almost risk-free, fuel people and feed them for six months on the journey and give them stuff for the return journey, etc. That's mm -hmm. very, very dangerous, and the uh, public probably won't uh, accept the cost or the risk. So my story is that um, we should uh, leave human spaceflight to adventurers prepared to accept high risks funded by the billionaires, mm -hmm. Musk and Bezos, people like that, because there are people who would be prepared to go to Mars on a one-way trip. In fact, Musk himself has said that uh, he'd like to die on Mars, but not an impact. Mm -hmm. And he's now, I think, 51 or 52 years old, so 40 years from now, good luck to him. And mm -hmm. there are other people like that who will go, and uh, they will go on a mission which is very risky and therefore far cheaper than anything that NASA would do, right. because NASA's risk-averse, and it's not our taxpayers' money anyway. Uh, so my scenario is that there may well 
be a small colony of people living on Mars by the end of a century. Probably adventurers rather like Captain Scott and Abbotson and people like that. Um, and they'll be trying to live in this very hostile environment. And I think this will happen. But incidentally, I don't agree with Musk that uh, that will be followed by mass emigration of humans because living on Mars is much worse than living at the bottom of the ocean at the South Pole. And uh, dealing with climate change on Earth is a doddle compared to terraforming Mars. So, mm, yeah. so there's no planet before there is converse people. But the reason I digressed into this topic is that if you think of these uh, crazy pioneers on Mars, they'd be ill-adapted, but they'd be away from the regulators. And so they will use all the techniques of cyborg and genetic modification to design their progeny to be better suited to that environment. Mm. And they will become a different species within a few hundred years. And the key question then is, will they still be flesh and blood? Or could it be that uh, the human brain is about the limit of what can be done by flesh and blood, and therefore they will become electronic? And if they become electronic, then of course, they will need an atmosphere, they may prefer zero G, and they'll be near immortal, so then they will go off interstellar space. And so the far future would be one in which our descendants, our remote descendants, mediated by these crazy uh, adventures on Mars, uh, will start spreading through the Milky Way. And uh, that raises the other question, are we the first? Mm. Or are there, are there some others? And of course, this leads to SETI and all that. And the relevance to SETI is that if we ask what will be the evidence for anything intelligent, it will be, in, in my opinion, far more likely to be some electronic artifacts than a flesh and blood civilization like ours. Because if you think of the track that our civilization has taken, it's lasting a few thousand years at most, then these electronic progeny will last for billions of years. And so if we had another planet, it's unlikely to be synchronized within a few thousand years in its evolution with ours. So if it's got a head start, then it'll gone past the flesh and blood civilization stage and uh, will have left electronic progeny. So the most likely evidence we would find of intelligence would be electronic entities produced by some civilization which had evolved rather like I think may happen here on mm. our solar system, but with a head start. That's a long answer to say that that's a future evolution. Yeah. Yo, what, what do you make of the fact, I and mean, this is your, this is the Fermi problem question, what do you make of the fact that we don't see evidence of any of that technology out there when we look up in all, the, in all our ways of looking up? I'm glad you asked that because I think this also uh, eases that problem too because uh, uh, Darwinian evolution favors intelligence maybe but also aggression. But these electronic entities may evolve to greater intelligence, deeper and deeper thoughts, but there's no reason why they should be aggressive. So they could be out there just thinking deep thoughts. The idea that they'd all be expansionist and come to eat us, as it were, doesn't really make sense. So I think they could be out there and, and uh, not as conspicuous as um, a flesh and blood civilization, but they could still be out there. But given the, the mismatch in timing of the birth of, of intelligence and technology yes, on any yes. planet that you, that you just referenced, I mean, the fact that, you know, in our case, you know, all of the gains we've made that could possibly show up uh, and announce our presence to the rest of the cosmos have been made in 
a couple hundred years, uh, and we're we're now envisioning a, a situation where if life is common, if intelligent life is common in the galaxy, mm-hmm. uh, we, you know there there are planets that could be you know twenty million years ahead of us or more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you shift, if you acknowledge the the likely shifts in time in that way, wouldn't you expect to see and and for leaving antagonism aside, just the curiosity to explore? Wouldn't you expect to see the galaxy teeming with some signs of technological life uh, elsewhere, if in fact it, it, it exists? Well, we don't know what their uh, motives would be, and we've no idea what their technology would be. It would be so different to be able to recognize it. But mm. the, the, the point I would make is that um, even if life is already common in our galaxy or had originated in many places, then in the Drake equations, this term the lifetime of a civilization mm. and that's a very small uh, number in in most estimates and uh, we know that's the factor that militates against the likelihood of a nearby flesh and blood civilization in the technological stage so i think i completely agree with you that we're far more likely to have lots and lots of these electronic post-humans but i just think we should be on the lookout for them we should uh, uh, look for artifacts we should look for uh, so-called lurkers in our solar system and all that kind of thing. But uh, we've got no idea what to look for. And they may be so far beyond us that uh, uh, we just can't, can't detect the kind of, sort of large mechanical artifacts that uh, uh, we, we might expect. We just don't know. Because, of course, the, the other point, which uh, I think we have to be aware of, is that, as you said at the beginning, our science is provisionally incomplete. and. Uh, there's no particular reason to believe that our brains are capable of understanding the deepest aspects of reality. And so it could be that there are aspects of reality that our brains can't comprehend, just as a monkey can't comprehend uh, quantum theory, uh, which perhaps uh, lead to types of complexity which are just not conspicuous to us. Mm. So I just think we've got to be, we've got to be open-minded. We should search, but I don't think we should be surprised if we don't see anything, and I think uh, this view that the post humans will be electronic makes me take the Fermi paradox less seriously. What do you make of that term in the Drake equation that uh, would suggest that civilizations have a a necessarily finite lifetime? I mean, do you, do you think that there's something about advanced intelligence that is inimical to Long-term survival. I mean, this, we, we, I, I say this on the you know, as we're on the yes, cusp yes. of birthing artificial yes. intelligence. That we yes, we yes. wonder, you know, and some of us don't wonder enough whether or not it might not be aligned with our interests. There's this concept yes. in existential risk circles of of a great yes. filter, right? That might it may it might account for you know where everyone is or isn't at the moment. Yes. What do you think about uh, that as a concept? It could happen, and of course. Uh, my scenario of the um, electronic entities on Mars, that, that, that they could exist independently within a few hundred years of the present. Mm. And so uh, uh, if it's not wiped out by then, then they will spread. That's all right. But uh, I think we've got to be open-minded about how long a civilization will last on the Earth, because here on Earth, we're well adapted, so I don't imagine there will be such rapid changes uh, even if we have the possibility of uh, uh, genetic modification, because we are already adapted to 
habitat quite well. And so, again, how long that Earth civilization will last, again, we don't, we don't know. And uh, that is a, a separate question from whether our electronic progeny could survive. Mm. What do you think of the, um, the concept of the multiverse or the, or the many worlds interpretation of quantum <laughs> mechanics? I, I realize those two co- phrases can be used somewhat differently, but the, this, yes, the yes. idea that many non-physicists, or probably all non-physicists, mm. and, and certainly many physicists, <laughs> you find uh, about as <laughs> astounding as any idea ever articulated that there could be yeah, yes. a functionally infinite number of copies of ourselves having increasingly different conversations of this sort right now in parallel mm-hmm. realities. And this, yes. this represents a rational way of, of summarizing the results of, of certain experiments in physics involving yes, uh, yes. You know, light acting as a wave and as a particle <laughs> by turns. Yes. Where, where do you come down on that question? Yes. Um, well, uh, as you implied, there's a big difference between the effort interpretation of quantum mechanics, where the universe uh, exfoliates and bifurcates whenever anything happens. Yep. And uh, I don't want to discuss that. But there's the other question, uh, which I associate with people like Andre Linde, uh, the idea that our Big Bang was not the only one, and that back in the early universe, there were conditions where Big Bangs went off, not just one, but as an ensemble. And uh, this is a theory that he proposed about 30 years ago, and there been lots like it. And um, it, it, it's, it's possible, but the problem is that we don't understand the relevant physics, and that's why it's pure speculation. I would say it's speculative science, it's not metaphysics, but it's speculative science because everything about the Big Bang in the first nanosecond is beyond direct experimental verification. What's amazing in my working life is that we've gone from a stage when we didn't know if there was a Big Bang at all. You know, my predecessor, Fred Hoyer, believed in a steady state theory, etc. And so we've mm-hmm. gone from that stage to a stage when we can uh, actually quantify to within a few percent precision what the universe was like at all stages back to the time when it was about a nanosecond old. A pretty good evidence yeah. for nuclear reactions one second, and you're familiar with this. So why, why do I say nanosecond? That's when the energies of each particle were about as high as the energies we can produce in a big particle accelerator. So before the first nanosecond, if you extrapolate back the Big Bang further, then of course we are in the regime where the physics is untested and speculative. Um, and uh, uh, there are ideas, as the idea of cosmic inflation, which has been talked about for 40 years, that depends on a much, much earlier stage. And to see this in perspective, when the universe was a nanosecond old, then the presently observable universe would have been the size of the solar system. But at the time that Andre Linde talks about, and the inflationary people, the observable universe would be the size of a tennis ball, mm-hmm. or maybe say a baseball, I should say, for you, but, um, but very, very small. And that's a huge extrapolation, uh, which is very far from anything we can understand. And so that will remain the situation until we have some sort of uniform, uniform theory, like, say, string theory, which does allow us to describe those very extreme conditions. And in order to have confidence in such a theory, then it's got to uh, predict some things we can observe. For instance, if we 
if we were able to uh, work out the 10-dimensional geometry of some superstring model. And incidentally, this is where AI could help, just like the deep mind computer playing chess. Mm-hmm. If, if one could do these calculations, and if the computer spewed out at the, at the end the right mass for the electron um, or the other, as up to now, unexplained numbers of the standard model, and the three kinds of neutrinos and all that, then we'd know there was something in it. And we would then be confident to apply that theory back where we couldn't test it directly. In other words, in the very early universe. So if and only if we have a theory which uh, can be vindicated by observations in our low energy world and which applies in this tiny, tiny fraction of a second where Linde's theories may prevail, then we would perhaps have reason to believe in the a multiverse, and we don't know, because uh, if you make a specific set of predictions, uh, of assumptions, then you get the multiverse, otherwise you don't. And so mm-hmm. we've got to make a huge breakthrough before this becomes other than pure speculation. So I think um, it's worth thinking about these things and just uh, to recognize that um, although it, it may be pretty good to have traced things right back to when the universe was a nanosecond old, there are many powers of 10 on a log scale before that, where much mm-hmm. of the action took place. And so there's a, a huge gap in our knowledge because we don't have an understanding of the very high energy physics that prevails back then. Um, and so there's lots of speculations, but they are just speculations. And of course, uh, they make just different, different assumptions. Some predict that all the Big Bangs would be governed by the same physics. Others predict that uh, the low energy physics would be different in some of them than in ours, because the so-called vacuum can have lots of different states. So we just don't know anything about that. There are lots of possibilities. Mm. Do you have a position on string theory? I mean, many people I know worry that it's a intellectual dead end that has absorbed you know, the better part of a, a generation or, or a generation and a half of, of very smart physicists. How, well, how yeah. do you think about string theory at this point? Well, I mean, I don't like these the attitude of people who rubbish it, because I think it's rather um, arrogant to uh, question the way Ed Witten chooses to spend his life, which he's mm-hmm. much cleverer than any of us. So, but on the other hand, sociologically, I do think that uh, too many people are working on that theory compared to exploring other options. So I do think that right. too many people are working on string theory. But on the other hand, I, I, I wouldn't uh, uh, want to criticize uh, the few who do and who have developed the subject. Do you know Witten? Yes, I do. Mm. Uh, yeah, he's, I've never met him, but he, he's another mm. one of these, these lone geniuses whose reputation precedes him. Indeed, uh, yes. And, and uh, there's just a few like that who have uh, injected new ideas into the theory. But I think you know, if I was running a physics department, I wouldn't necessarily feel it was essential to have a group of string theorists in my department. Right. Well, what do you think are the most fascinating unresolved problems in cosmology and, and your other areas of focus at the moment? What, if, you, yes. if you could shortlist the questions you would want answered, if you could answer any, if you had the, you know, the genie, if you, if you, found, if you yes. found the bottle with the genie in it, mm. what, what would be the, the questions you would pose? Well, I would like to, to know more about uh, the early universe. Are there many Big Bangs or just one? Can we understand why it's expanded the way it is, etc.? But as I say, uh, these may be very elusive questions. They may even be beyond human capacity to understand. So I don't expect there to be 
solved in the coming decades. But uh, if we think of what's most exciting, I would say it's a quite different area of astronomy. It's the um, discovery of exoplanets around stars, mm. which makes the night sky look much more interesting because each uh, star we see in the sky is not just a, a point of light, but it's uh, another solar system uh, like ours with planets. And of course, we certainly can be confident now that there are billions of planets which are rather like the Earth in the sense of being mm -hmm. about the size of the Earth and uh, at a distance from a parent star such that uh, water can exist neither boiling away nor, nor staying frozen. And it's a so-called habitable zone. So that makes the um, night sky very, very interesting and, of course, um, has given a boost to the whole field of exobiology. Um, and, of course, it's interesting that um, the origin of life on Earth is still a mystery. We understand Darwinian evolution, but the uh, basic transition from complex chemistry to the first metabolizing, reproducing entities we call alive, that's still a mystery. Mm -hmm. And indeed, until a few years ago, it was put in the uh, too difficult box, as it were. What I mean by that is that there was work done in the 1950s by uh, Yuri and Miller, you probably mm -hmm. read about this, who, who they, they fired electric sparks yeah. through chemical mixtures, etc. Um, and uh, they made amino acids and all that. But um, the fact that people were still talking about that and hadn't tried to do better just indicated that the uh, topic was put on the shelf. People didn't think they could make any progress. But now two things have happened. First, there are some uh, serious molecular biologists. Uh, I, I know some of them. We've got some in Cambridge who are uh, working on this topic. And, of course, there's a huge motivation because um, although we can't make details of observations of any exoplanets to see if they've got vegetation on them yet. That will come in a decade or two. And, uh, of course, we may even find evidence of some kind of life in the outer solar system on uh, uh, Enceladus, a moon of Saturn, mm -hmm. or uh, Europa, a moon of, of Jupiter. No one expects any advanced life there, of course, but uh, it's very worthwhile to have a robotic mission to those places. And... Uh, suspicions are being planned, because if we found evidence for any kind of life in either of those places, it would have the momentous conclusion that the origin of life wasn't a rare fluke, which only happened in one place. If it happened twice independently yeah. in our solar system, it must have happened in a billion places in the galaxy. So uh, that would tell us that life of some kind pervaded the galaxy. It would still leave leave uncertain the question of how likely it was to evolve into something like our biosphere, but it would be a huge step forward. And, uh, you know, and incidentally, you asked, why didn't I, do I talk about those and not just Mars, which is nearer? And the argument there is that if we found evidence for life on Mars, it wouldn't be completely obvious it had to be an independent origin because uh, meteorites could go from, uh, from Mars to the Earth and maybe the right. other way around. But uh, I think it would be an independent origin if there were any life on a moon around Saturn, for instance. Uh, so anyway, uh, th this is, in my opinion, a really, really exciting area where we see developments. And um, mm. the James Webb telescope um, will help a bit. It can get crude spectra of uh, nearby planets. And uh, the next step forward will be when the uh, world's biggest ground-based optical telescope, uh, the European extremely large telescope. Europeans are rather unimaginative in their nomenclature. Mm -hmm. But that's been built 
that's being built in Chile now, and it's got a mirror 39 meters across. Not one sheet of glass, but a, a mosaic of mm-hmm. uh, 800 sheets of glass. But that will collect enough light that it should be able to um, look at a, a star with a planet around it and separate out the tiny fraction of the light comes from the planet mm. and therefore get a crude spectrum of the, of the planet. And so that, that would be a, a great thing, which may give some evidence for vegetation. Will, will that actually will that ground-based telescope be more powerful than than the Webb space-based telescope? I think it would for this purpose because its collecting area is is much greater. It's, it's about ten times greater, mm. so it can, it can collect more more photons. It w- won't be able to observe in the infrared, of course. So for many purposes, the James Webb is going to be better. Mm. And of course, um, we can expect better telescopes in space. I just mentioned the ELT because. Uh, it's going to be online within about eight years. And I think one, one point I'd mention, since I've been rather disparaging about human spaceflight, I'm very enthusiastic about SpaceX um, mm-hmm. and um, its new giant uh, rocket called uh, Starship, isn't it? Yeah. which um, it's failed to test. But of course, the earlier rocket failed three times, but they were not to have eight success in a row. And if, if we had a rocket like that, then something like the James Webb could have been made much more quickly and cheaply for two reasons. First, the whole six and a half meter mirror could go in one piece in a nose cone. And secondly, since the weight limit could be much higher, seven or 10 tons rather than one and a half, it could be built more robustly and out of less exotic materials. So the new huge rocket, when it becomes reliable, is going to be hugely advantageous in the allowing instruments to be put up in space more cheaply and also to take, take up 100 tons of stuff into low Earth orbit to get robots to fabricate big, big uh, space telescopes as well. Mm. Well, when I, when I think about the possible resolutions to the Fermi problem, I find that it's, it's strange that both extremes seem uncanny. I mean, the, the idea that we're alone seems absolutely bizarre and in some ways terrifying. And the idea that the cosmos is teeming with advanced life uh, that we just haven't detected yet is also mm. absolutely astounding and and in its own way terrifying. But only one of them seems, I mean, if you could tell me that either were true, <laughs> only one of them would strike me as genuinely surprising. I mean, I just, at, at this point, to be told that we are in fact alone in the universe would be astounding. Whereas to learn that no, in fact, life is common and intelligent, even intelligent life is common, mm-hmm. given the, the numbers, that would at least, it, you know, given that as the punchline, if we just you know knew that was the answer, I at least would feel well, what? Of course, what were we thinking? We thought we, were, we thought we were alone. We thought we thought statistically we were the the, the one in a. Yes. trillion, trillion, trillion outcome. It yes. seems ridiculous to have expected that. Does it land for you the, uh, in the same way? No, uh, indeed, I, I share those, those views. Uh, and of course, let's not forget that even if simple life were common, then uh, evolution towards intelligence uh, may be deterred by many contingencies. I mean, Stephen Jay Gould, mm. I think in particular, thought that uh, uh, there are a lot of contingencies and uh, it was unlikely that a random origin of life would lead to something 
like what we have on Earth. And so we don't know what that probability is. I, th- I think his point, though, is that if you could replay biological evolution from the Cambrian explosion on... Yes, yes. You wouldn't arrive with the same outcome. Yeah. You wouldn't arrive with you know social primates mm-hmm. like ourselves. But R- I, d- right, I, d- yes. I don't recall him saying that you wouldn't arrive with intelligent life. I see. And I, so I, uh, I, I don't know his works in detail. So maybe, yeah, I, 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 I actually but could I'm, be mistaken here, but that was, that's but, my but, memory of it. Yeah, yes. But whatever he said, I mean, it's, it's certainly a possible scenario that uh, complex life is in, indeed a rather unlikely outcome if you if you run lots of biospheres right from the Darwinian beginning. We just right. don't know, and and of course we we don't know the Hughes variety, and uh, it's very exciting that we are right at the beginning of uh, exploring all this. And of course, as I keep saying, we don't know whether our brains are up to it, and. Uh, to what extent the key explanations will be beyond our grasp. So how do you, in your your recent book, you spend some time discussing the the flaws as you see them in our educational system and in in the the institutions that govern education in in each current generation, and also just the the funding of science, just the, the, the ways in which scientists have to spend half their time or more writing grants. What, what, what improvements could we make to our, our scientific and educational institutions at this point that would facilitate scientific progress? Well, I think our education system, of course, is rather sclerotic and uh, hasn't changed much since the 19th century. It needs to change because of AI. And of course, uh, during COVID, uh, we learned the amount that can be done remotely by part-time education, etc. And so I think that one can use AI to uh, influence education at all levels. Um, And also, if you think of universities, I personally think, and I think of the situation which we have in your country and mine, which is um, where universities take people at age of, mainly between ages of 18 and 22, for residential courses full-time, and uh, certainly in my country, they're rather too specialized. And so I think we need to have more variety and also far more lifelong learning. And indeed, uh, um, I, I pay tribute to the um, Arizona State University, uh, which has been a lead in doing this sort of thing. I think there's a lot that certainly we in England can learn from that. And I suspect a more conservative institutions in the US. And so uh, I think we, we need to um, have lifelong learning uh, which can take advantage of people working part-time and uh, a mixture of uh, AI and direct instruction. So that's one thing. As far as universities are concerned, of course, your country and mine have what was actually the original German system of the research university invented by Humboldt in the, mm. uh, about 1820. Of course, the Germans don't have that anymore. They have research mainly in Max Planck Institute, which is a standalone here. And um, my my view in um, in the UK, and I think it's rather similar in the US, is that um, academic careers are becoming less attractive because there's more audit culture and uh, more more pressure, etc. And um, I think it's not possible to do full-time, long-term blue skies research in universities now as well as was possible in the past. Mm -hmm. And so Uh, I think I say in my book and in other contexts that we do probably need to have more 
research institutes which are standalone from universities to allow full-time research. And indeed, in the UK, we have the famous Laboratory of Molecular Biology, uh, which is was supported by the Medical Research Council in Cambridge, but quite separate. And that was uh, perhaps the most successful single lab anywhere in the world in this field, and there are others like it. And I think we need more of that kind of thing. And um, uh, I know Steve Chu felt this in the energy sector when he was Secretary for Energy. And uh, I think that, take an example, in order to develop clean energy for the world, we need uh, to have lots more new ideas. Uh, we need to have uh, better solar energy collectors and uh, better ways of storing energy more cheaply, etc., and better nuclear and all the rest of it. And I think we probably need to have standalone institutions to do things like that. And incidentally, I make that point because one thing in my book, which we have discussed, is that we've got to be aware of the huge gap between the global north and the global south. Mm -hmm. If we think about the problem of climate change, it's reasonable that the global north can perhaps achieve net zero by 2050 using the technology that uh, already exists and can be developed. It may not happen for, for lack of political will, but it could happen. But by 2050, there'll be 4 billion people in the global south, by which I mean sub-Saharan Africa and parts of India. And they now emit very little per capita energy. But if we hope they will develop and close the gap between their standard of living and that of us in the north, they're going to need more energy. And what we've got to do is to ensure that with our collaboration, they can leapfrog directly to clean, carbon-free energy, just as they've leapfrogged directly to smartphones and never had right. landlines. Um, and I think that's, that's going to be crucially important. Otherwise, by 2050, even if we've achieved net zero, the 4 billion in the global south may be producing as much CO2 as we in the north are today. And, then, right. and so we, we, we know closer to combating uh, long-term climate change. So that's just one example. And so I think nothing could be more attractive to idealistic young engineers than developing clean energy for the world. And I think we've got to provide conditions which are better for them if they want to devote their life to things like that. And universities are becoming less attractive. In fact, uh, I wrote an article on this theme focusing on British universities in a magazine two years ago. And as you know, the editor makes up the headline, not, not the author. And the headline they gave that article was, Why I'm Glad I'm Not a Young Academic. Mm -hmm. Indeed, I was, because I, I, was, I, I felt that uh, when, when I was uh, young, there had been a big expansion in the 60s, young outnumbered the old, and people retired at 65, etc. So it was possible to get quick promotions. And uh, in academia, the slow promotion, more audit culture, more precarity in the living style until your mid-30s. And I think we're going to lose through that because we don't want everyone to become an academic, but we want academia to attract at least some fraction of talented and ambitious people who feel they want to achieve something distinctive by their 30s. And I think they will hmm. be steered away from academia because, to give an example from the US, a survey showed a few years ago that the average age when people got their first grant from the NIH if they're biomedical areas, was 43 or something like that. 
And that's a very discouraging figure for an ambitious young person. So that's a very long way of saying that I think we've got to uh, incentivize research careers in order to um, provide energy for the world. And the same argument is equally true if you want to provide uh, sustainably intensive agriculture where we can feed the world without encroaching too much on natural habitats. So I think to deal with the world's problems in the second half of the century, we're going to need lots of R&D. And I'm not sure the universities are constructed now are going to be up to the challenge. So we, we, need, we need more. So that's the reason I think we've got to change mm. our research system. Well, what would keep an, a non-university institution from becoming just as sclerotic as a university? I mean, what, what funding stream are you imagining would, make, would take the friction out of the, the system? Well, all I can say is that in Britain, we had fairly successful experiences of the uh, laboratory I mentioned and a few other institutions for food science, etc. Um, and uh, you had the and Bell they're, they're Labs. government funded? They're government funded, yes. And uh, mm. you had the Bell Labs. And yeah. uh, uh, I, I don't see why they shouldn't be government funded, but with uh, job descriptions which uh, focus on, on research into long-term and socially important problems. I mean, there's so much money to be made in many of these areas. I mean, obviously, if someone could perfect fusion, they would expect to get very, very rich in doing so. Yes, yes. Why is there a general market failure here, do you think? Is just the startup costs to make any headway are just so enormous that, that no one can be appropriately incentivized by the possibility of turning a profit? Well, I think that that's probably true of, uh, of fusion. Which is everyone accepts it's quite a long way away and a big challenge to make it economical. But uh, lots of things can be done better in the private sector. And incidentally, one plus of uh, some people in the private sector getting rich is that we may have a revival of the uh, independent professional level scientists. You yeah. have huge numbers of amateur scientists, of course, especially in astronomy and natural history. But we don't have professionals like uh, Darwin and Lord Rayleigh in the 19th century were both rich. They came from rich families and they could, they could do their stuff. But there are now lots of people who, by the time they're 40, have made enough money uh, and have the expertise that they could uh, uh, set up their own lab and uh, become independent scientists. And I think mm. more people of that kind would be a good thing from more points of view. Yeah, but one of the problems with the way money interacts with certain of these, these issues is that whether it creates bad incentives or not, it creates the perception of bad incentives. So um, I'm thinking in particular of our experience through COVID and you know pharmaceutical companies racing to produce vaccines, which we were all very excited about and happy with initially. But then you have this, the public perception of companies like Pfizer, you know, making, you know, windfall profits in the face of a catastrophe. And, you know, very, very quickly, we transitioned into a, a majority of the, of the public in, in the U.S., at least, no longer trusting the scientific representations of pharmaceutical companies because mm -hmm. they were so, they appeared to be so conflicted with respect to their profit motive. I mean, they, we know they're making billions of dollars. Of course, they're recommending this next round of boosters for everyone, including infants, because, you know, even if the data is not there, the billions of dollars are, and there's just something so corrupting, again, whether in fact or in perception, 
of the whole enterprise. And I, I could imagine there, there are analogous ways in which money could contaminate you know, doing other forms of good in, in the world, whether it's bringing mm. you know, our, our most advanced green technology to the global south or, or anything else. Yes, yes, yes. No, I agree, uh, especially with what you say about these very big pharma companies. And of course, the same is true of the big fossil fuel companies. And of course, yeah. as we discussed earlier, we have the same worries about the multinationals that dominate the uh, AI space. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so I think one does worry. And, uh, and so I do think we've got to move towards a system of uh, firmer state control of these, these systems systems, and of course, uh, reducing the vast inequalities in wealth, which they uh, enable. Yeah, yeah. Although this returns us to the age-old problem of incentives with respect to capitalism and its, uh, yes. its various alternatives. I mean, the, if you're going to give but, government yeah. control over innovation, then you're, you know, there's a kind of a race to the bottom effect economically. Well, I, don't, I wouldn't agree with that because uh, I, I think the, the wealth that goes to CEOs which is about mm. 300 times the average wage of their employees, yeah, at is least. Yeah. far, far too great. I mean, I, 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 mean yeah, I speak obviously as a, uh, someone who would be dismissed as a lefty in the United States, but I genuinely mm. think that uh, countries like Britain should learn less from the United States and more from Scandinavia and Northern Europe, which have a, a stronger public sector, better public services, and far less inequality. Uh, so I think uh, one gains more than one loses by uh, constraining the extremes of wealth. So the mechanism you're imagining here is taxation, not just an arbitrary limit on the possibility of growing fantastically wealthy. Yes. And uh, of course, I discuss in my book this in the context of the uh, multinational AI companies, which of mm -hmm. course are hard to regulate because they are multinational. But I think the um, positive scenario would be if they were able to replace the mind-numbing jobs like working in a telephone call center and, and other jobs like that, which can easily be done by a machine. But they be taxed on the profits of that, and that tax hypothecated to create right. large numbers of jobs in areas where being a human being is important and which are now underfunded and too few. In particular, carers for young and old, custodians in public parks, teachers' assistants and things like that, uh, that would be a win-win situation. But that mm. requires a massive redistribution and probably an increase in public sector expenditure as a fraction of GNP. Not to be too pedantic here, but let me come to the aid of any listeners who don't have hypothecated accessible on, their, on the wetware of their brains. <laughs> uh, you, you mean be a pledging, pledging that money to those causes? Yeah, yes, that does specified for those particular subjects. Yep. Yeah. Well, so finally, Martin, I detected it at one point in your book that there's some daylight between you and my fellow new atheists on the question of religion and the zero-sum conflict or lack thereof between religious faith and scientific rationality. Okay. At some point in the book, you describe the efforts of new atheists to get the Royal Society, I believe, to disavow religion in some overt way. And, and, and so, I, right. I, though I, I obviously yes. was not involved in that, but I, I detected there yeah, might have yeah. been some, some collision between you and my friend Richard Dawkins uh, in the background there. But anyway, t uh, tell yeah, me your thoughts yes, on this yes. topic. Yes. Well, I mean, let me say, I mean, to quote uh, Stephen Jay Gould, he had what he called 
non-overlapping magisteria, which is a rather pompous way of saying yeah. that there's not much interface between science and religion. And uh, I always decline invitations to speak on panels where that's the agenda, because mm -hmm. I don't think there's much, uh, much overlap between them. And uh, I suppose my feeling was that they can coexist. And obviously, if religious dogma is contrary to science, it can't. But uh, as we both know, there are a lot of uh, uh, very good scientists who manage to combine that with um, a religious belief. I don't have the, that religious belief, so I find mm. it hard to understand that. But clearly, uh, we, we know that objectively many, many do have this. And uh, I think we should not, not attack them. So, uh, uh, and indeed, I was rather nasty about uh, the so-called new atheists because they're not very new. I'm, I'm afraid I described you all as small-time Bertrand Russells, mm -hmm. saying less clearly <laughs> what he said 100 years well, ago. You know? uh, Bertrand, uh, uh, Bert, listen, uh, Bertrand uh, Russell was enough of a giant that I would be happy to be a small-time <laughs> version of Bertrand <laughs> <What's> Russell. <I? laughs> right, no offense yes, taken. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, so so um, uh, I think uh, I think one should be open-minded. Uh, and of course, I think the, the other the other point is, I think um, one shouldn't overestimate how far rationality can take take you. I mean, I think you've you've talked about rational ethics. Mm -hmm. You can you've got to have an ethical system which is rational in the sense of not being self contradictory or internally in, inconsistent. But that's not enough. Uh, you can have a, a rational system which is purely egotistical or very altruistic or mm -hmm. very long termist and and all that. And so uh, one needs to bring in something other than rationality, in deciding what ethical system you favor and, and would uh, advocate other people adopting. It's not, not really. And of course, the other point I would say is that not much of our life is guided by pure rationality. Mm. Even people who aren't religious, they, they put flowers on graves, they will uh, have a funeral ceremony and things of that kind. These are, in my view, worthwhile ceremonials and uh, for traditional reasons, they are often attached to, to some kind of established religion. And um, my personal attitude, having been brought up very conventionally in, in the UK, is that I don't have any religious belief, but I'm happy to uh, participate in the practices of the English church because it, it emphasizes what we have in common in a world where so much emphasizes inequalities and it also emphasizes our heritage from uh, generations past, which is again something which is valuable. And uh, so to emphasize equality and our debt to the past is a good thing. Plus also, of course, they have acquired uh, marvelous um, ethical accretions in the architecture and the music, etc. So I'd be sad if they died out. So uh, mm. I, I do um, go to go to religious services and um, I'd be happy to be, be buried according to the rituals of the Church of England, like George Orwell and others said who are unbelievers, because I think it does more good than harm. And therefore, I, um, I would not want to attack the system. Mm. And that's where I, I do differ, for, differ from Richard. You know? Yeah. Well, so I think I can defend Richard's view, even, even though it's not precisely mine. I mean, one of the confounding variables here is that, that he and I and Christopher Hitchens and Dan Dennett in being described as, as the new atheists were often talked yes. about as though we were actually a single four-headed atheist who's with a, with a unified views on every conceivable topic related to religion and yes, ethics yes. And, and politics. 
which wasn't the case. But I think Richard would agree with some of what you have just said with respect to the the beauty mm-hmm. of of many of the products of religion, mm-hmm. as well as yes. the the benign comfort that many many millions of people have taken in religious belief, however unmoored it might be from scientific yes, yes. rationality. And we wouldn't want to, you know, rush to the bedside of every dying believer and, and disabuse them of their faith okay. in their final moments. Right. None of, none of the four atheists were uh, imagining that that would be progress, yes. moral yes. or otherwise. Oh, um, no. Good, but, good to hear that. Yeah, okay. But, but I, the thing that I think we all would disagree with you about in, in what you just said is that every religion, if taken seriously, does make just a, a blizzard of specific claims to propositional knowledge, which are, if not obviously false, obviously unlikely at this point, and and worth betting against, right? And so, and if, you, if you're going to take Judaism and Christianity and Islam specifically, I mean, given yeah. the, our, our Western context, yeah. that's reasonable. Yes, yes. You know, all of these traditions make claims about the divine origin or at least non-human origin of specific books and their perfect veracity you know with you know there's a little bit of mm-hmm. finessing with respect to obvious craziness and, and error in those books but if you're going to talk about fundamentalist religion in in the United States for instance and you're yes. talking about tens of millions of people who think they think the world is, you know, six thousand years old, you know, and they and they based on you know the calculation of generations in the Bible, and they think that Jesus, the biological human who really did exist in historical time, you know, two thousand years ago, really cheated death and will really be physically coming back to Earth to really raise the dead. You know, these are not metaphors; these are historical expectations. And you know, more important still, they think that he and his father, who is somehow also him. Uh, exist in some ethereal space even now and are listening to prayers and granting them by turns. And again, these are not mere metaphors. These are the positive assertion of knowledge. And in, you know, in an American context, you know, this this is much, this has been much less of a concern recently, but, you know, back in the time when we were writing our books on this topic, shades of, of encroaching theocracy in America were all too visible. And it was, you know, a real concern that many, many millions of Americans were were making their political decisions on the basis of medieval considerations born of religious certainty. So these are, that's set up this kind of zero-sum picture. I mean, if either you think prayer works or you don't, and if you really think it works, which is to say you're really willing to bet the, you know, the lives of your children on it, well, then you become a scary person. I mean, nobody wants an airline pilot who thinks he might be able to land the plane with prayer. Mm-hmm. And so that's where these, yeah. the fact-based considerations of, of science become antithetical to the explicit or, or implicit factual claims of religion. And, and we can be polite about it. We can ignore it when it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But when it really seems to matter, when you have you know, stem cell research getting blocked in the United States because People think there are microscopic souls in every petri dish, and the life-saving promise of that research gets interrupted for uh, you know a, a decade or more. That's where many of the you know the atheists become politically energized. Yes. Well, uh, just a few a few comments. I mean, first of all, I should say I don't believe in any dogma, and perhaps I'd no. be happier uh, with um, Shintoism or Buddhism. 
which has less than the three mm. religions you, you mentioned. But on the other hand, um, I don't really think it matters as much as you say uh, that people have these beliefs that we find hard to understand. And looking at America, you've got uh, just as much unpleasantness due to Trump without any aid from fundamentalists at all. He's, he's not well, well, there was aid. There was aid. But I mean, Trump is a he's a not, once in a generation he's not little a, he's not a holy earth man crossing any, object. Yeah, yeah, he's not a holy man in any sense, uh, but he's causing no, immense no, damage. No, but, but I mean, he, he, was, he wouldn't have become president without pandering to the religious concerns of, of yeah. the far right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. But, 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 but also, I mean, when we get to sort of bioethics, um, I think there is, a, hmm. quite apart from any uh, divine inspiration or all that, I, I think the, the, the question of the extent to which one should value nature and uh, be hesitant about altering it, I, I think that's, that's something which uh, is a, ma- a matter of taste, etc., where people are entitled to, to different views and, uh, hmm. uh, uh, about how one treats animals and all that. There are different views, and it's an important ethical question. You know, most of us feel that we shouldn't mistreat animals, and that's really nothing to do with religion very much, because religions haven't said much about that, and, uh, and also that we should cherish nature. And um, I think there are two quite separate motives for those who care about the natural world. One is the cruelty of nature, and the other is the uh, reaction against someone who treads on raw flowers unintentionally. Uh, intentionally, you know, to, to one should appreciate the the beauties of nature, and uh, and that's a sort of spiritual activity. It doesn't depend very much on the, whether you associate it with particular religious dogmas, but it's something which uh, hmm. many people feel, and it does affect their attitude towards uh, uh, abortion um, and work on embryos and things of that kind. But I think on on, on embryos, I think. Quoted in an earlier book, there was a debate, certainly in the British Parliament, about um, the issue of um, whether research could be done on embryos. And uh, there's an agreement after 14 days they were mm-hmm. it was okay. And, um, and then there was a more recent debate about so-called three-parent embryos, where you would implant themselves. And um, there were some Catholics who opposed this, and uh, they were rightly attacked because they produced propaganda showing the embryo as though it was a homunculus, you know, like looking like a baby, mm-hmm. which is not mm-hmm. true. And uh, I think it was quite right to point out that a 14-day-old embryo is a, a gunge of a few cells, fairly amorphous, and uh, mm-hmm. but should not be under any misapprehension about that. But on the other hand, if some Catholic then says, I know that, but it's still sacred, then end of story. Uh, they're entitled to their view, and you can't, you can't disagree with them. Well, well, you can disagree with them because they actually don't have... Yes, you can disagree. The thing is, you, they don't have... As you point out, it's a larger problem of dogmatism. And yes. the thing that energized me and Richard and Christopher Hitchens and Dan Dennett at that point when we were publishing our books is that it's only in religion where dogma is actually a good word. I mean, every, <laughs> everywhere else, dogmatism is a, is a pejorative term. <laughs> But yes. in, in religion, you know, as you know, in Catholicism <laughs> yes, in particular, dogma is a good word. Yes. And it's, it, it has a special power and, and uh, it's yes. you're to grant your assent to it. Yes. So I mean, that, that 
proves that this you know Gouldian notion of non-overlapping magisteria yes, yes. M- never made any sense, yes, right? Yes. Well, when push comes to shove, you you either believe you're believing things for good reasons, or you're not. Yes. You're either you're 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 continually available to better evidence and better argument, mm-hmm. or you're not. And this this is a disorder in science. It actually prevents science. You can't come to a scientific conference and say, "Listen, I've I've got my cherished dogmas here about physics or molecular biology or information processing or anything else." And I'm not going to, you know, I'll talk about anything you guys want, but on these points, you know, I'm not open to argument. I don't care what you have discovered or what you have to say. You know, I learned these things somewhere around 1967, and I'm not going to change my views. Well, that's the antithesis of the scientific attitude. And yet that is the basis of every faith-based religion. I mean, that is the the epistemological bedrock of religion. Yes, but... But I say, and that's so that's that's the thing. That, but I think it's yeah. it's a smaller part of religion than uh, feeling you should honor the memory of the dead and put flowers on the graves and things like that. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's not all that's of it. Very important. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, so, so that's probably the difference between us. But I, I do remember uh, there was a whole book by the four of you based on an after dinner chat. It seems to me, mm-hmm. which was uh, yeah. all four of you implying you had this great message for the world, and I was a bit skeptical about. About that, well, so the, the one, the one other thread here, which uh, you know is, I think, a a great message for the world that w- would anyone embrace it, is that we need not be sheepish in imagining that there are truly right and wrong answers to questions of value, to questions of ethics, to, que- to questions of spiritual interest, the, the questions of you know what what makes life good, and that. Th- our view of, of what is true and what is beautiful and what is good can actually be united ultimately. And it, we not, it need not be balkanized in the way that Hume or anyone else has suggested, in which, in which you mm-hmm. suggested a few minutes ago. Yes. I mean, I think, yes, if you bound rationality very narrowly, well, then you can say, yes, there's no rational answer mm-hmm. to the question of what's good or you know, what, what should you do. But you can play that game in many other areas where we were never tempted to play it, right? Like, so you can, you know, by analogy with medicine, right? You could say, well, what if someone doesn't want to be healthy? You know, what if somebody wants yeah. to die? Or what, mm-hmm. what if somebody wants to vomit all the time? Yes. Like, what, how, who are you to say, <laughs> doctor, that somebody shouldn't be vomiting, Yes. right? Mm-hmm. And so where do, you, where do you get off trying to solve, you know, the continuous vomiting as a problem? What if somebody mm-hmm. likes vomiting? Mm-hmm. Right? So th- these are not problems we're ever tempted to entertain. And yet, when we talk about morality, all of a sudden, we tie our hands behind our back and say, oh, we have to entertain problems of this sort. So what about the Taliban that think it's a good thing to force women to be illiterate and live in cloth bags, mm-hmm. and they, they want to decapitate non-believers at halftime in their soccer matches, mm-hmm. or as you would say, football matches? How are we to say that that's not equally good to any, any other human enterprise. Well, it's, again, we, we don't need to play that particular game. It's obviously not good. It's, and it's obviously not good if we know anything at all about human well-being or its mm. possibilities. And so the, the argument I would make, and this, again, this is the argument I, I made in, in one of my books, The Moral Landscape, is that the moment we admit that the, that the well-being of conscious creatures is what matters, Right, you know, mm-hmm. we can define that as we can be as elastic as we want. I mean, it doesn't have to be just humans. It can one day be conscious AI if we build conscious AI. Mm-hmm. You know, consciousness is the only place in which 
the difference between happiness and suffering can register. Yes. And so if things matter, they matter actually or potentially for conscious systems. Yes. And we know that even if we never get the facts in hand, what we have is in this space of all possible experience, we have right and wrong answers to the question of how to navigate. We know that things can get very, very good or very, very bad with respect to experience. You know, it's possible to suffer pointless and interminable misery, and it's possible to have much better experience than that, to alight from, you know, one creative, beautiful encounter uh, to the next across horizons of intelligence and wonder and creativity and joy and absence of suffering of a sort that we can only dimly imagine. Mm-hmm. Whatever is possible there, and, and however we would navigate to those spaces, there are right and wrong answers uh, with respect to how to do that, even if we don't have them in hand. And at everything from the level of the genome through you know, questions of chemistry and biology and psychology and sociology and, and economics, every level at which we can influence you know, to take it narrowly now, to influence human experience, there are right and wrong answers around how to do that. And there are trade-offs to make, and, it's, and perhaps there are multiple, you know, equally auspicious answers that are incompatible, right? So there could be multiple peaks on this landscape mm-hmm. for social primates like ourselves. But there are many, many valleys that are quite obviously not peaks, right? And so when you're talking about... Mm-hmm you know, whether it's wise to throw battery acid in the faces of young girls for the crime of learning to read, as happens in Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. we don't have to be tongue-tied as scientists in casting judgment on that. We don't have to say, well, we don't prefer to live that way, but who knows? Maybe, you know, there's no place for us to stand scientifically to say that's not good. To fail to pass judgment on that Again, and this is in, in my view as a as a moral realist who wants to knit together mm-hmm. his his more view of good and evil with his view of true and false. To fail to cast judgment on that is to pretend that we know absolutely nothing about human well being, and, mm-hmm. and and that we will never know enough about it to be able to close our accounts with a practice like throwing battery acid in the faces of girls for wanting to learn to mm-hmm. read. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, you know, I don't know how much of out of that well, out of that lit, well, I mean, litany you extracted. I, I, but, I think, but I, I think you're espousing sort of 19th century utilitarian views in a in a straightforward way, uh, and um, uh, they have been criticized. Well, but not quite. I mean, yeah. so the, the reason why there's the reason why I didn't just call myself a utilitarian and, <laughs> yes. and be done with it is that there are other things to include which are generally not included when people think about utilitarianism. So a, a classic retort to you know, what you call 19th century utilitarianism is something like, okay, well, if it's just a matter of outcomes, if it's just a matter of happiness and suffering, you know, then why not always sacrifice the well-being of the one to the many, mm-hmm. right? So why, why shouldn't doctors just go into their waiting rooms and realize that they can sacrifice the life of one person to save mm-hmm. five? And we have, you know, compulsory vivisection of people, or what would be wrong with that? It's a, it's a net positive. But it, what that fails to take into account is all of the other consequences of living in a world where at any moment one could be vivisected by one's doctor, you know, the sheer terror of that, the sheer terror of being a parent, knowing that at any moment your child could be sacrificed to the benefit of the many. No one would want to live in that world, and for good reason. And so what, what you know, utilitarians tended not to take into account is 
the actual importance of the character of one's mind and the character of one's life. I mean, intentions matter, experiences matter, and you know, the, just the knock-on effects of all. It's, it's, mm. just, it's just not a matter of calculating body count in the end. Yeah, yeah, and, yes. yeah. But of course, uh, you can't call that particularly rational because there's so many different choices you can make. And to take another example, well, well what about whether there's an intrinsic beauty in um, a, mm -hmm. a natural world uh, of uh, plants and trees and animals, etc., even if no humans are there to observe it? I mean, is that something which is valuable in its own right or not? Yeah, we, can, we can have, we, of course, we can have rational conversations about both of those yes, things. Yes, I mean, just, just, just to take your, see, the thing I'm objecting to here is that we value differences of opinion on questions of value and, and morality yes. and good and evil yes. in a way that we don't value differences of opinion in other fields. I mean, there, there are differences of mathematical intuition. There's di there are differences of physical intuition that are as yet unresolved. Mm -hmm. But we don't, we don't move from that. I mean, so again, we, we talked, you know, you declined to comment on Everettian interpretations of quantum mechanics, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Now, maybe they're to your taste or maybe they're not. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, some people think they're insane and some people think they're the only rational resolution right. of, of the problem yeah, in physics. Yeah. But no one leaves the conversation saying, well, maybe there's just no truth there. Maybe there's just no way to rationally talk about this stuff. And everyone's opinion is as good as anyone else's opinion. Mm. Let's invite the Taliban to the physics conference to figure out what they think about many worlds. Mm -hmm. Yes. But I, I still don't think you can really accept that there will be consensus. Certainly, on the, well, one thing that we discussed earlier is um, genetic modification to enhance human beings. I think that's mm -hmm. going some people get a this sort of yuck response. To that, uh, yeah. others don't, and I think you can't say one's more rational than the other. Uh, well, you you can't always in the moment, but still we can make progress. But again, you can't always in the moment get consensus on physics, right? And no. you don't declare epistemological bankruptcy in the same way when the topic is physics as you do when the topic is aesthetics or ethics, and that's the double well, standard that I find fishy. And the, and the, the one well, distinction well, I would... Well, go, ahead, go ahead. No, it's, it's intrinsic because surely you'd agree that aesthetic standards are subjective and people can uh, have different views on uh, what kind of music they like, etc. And I'm just saying that moral judgments are no really more objective than aesthetic judgments. Well, they're not like physics well, at all. I think those differences have been exaggerated. I mean, first of all, aesthetic judgments are not completely random and idiosyncratic. Right. It's just it, there are principles by which we recognize beauty, and there are principles by which you know the, the the norms get overturned. But it is not an accident that so many people think Shakespeare was a, an amazing writer. Right. Now he might not be your. T he, you might not want to spend all your time reading Shakespeare. You might prefer to spend your time reading other writers. But there's still some point of view from which, I mean, this is true of me. I don't spend a tremendous amount of time reading Shakespeare, and I, I, I spend more time reading r lesser writers. But there's a place where I can stand, where I can acknowledge that Shakespeare was a better writer than writers who I prefer to read. 
And there's some principle, but I mean, I could, we could, I could go into this. I, I could rationally justify that judgment. It's not just epistemological chaos here. Well, there's, there, there's a rational conversation to be had about why Shakespeare is so good. And so it is with many other aesthetic judgments. It's not, and I, I would just say that, you know, if we get to a point where we could interface with technology such that we could dial in any possible state of consciousness. I mean, just imagine a helmet I could put on your head, and you, you could decide to have any possible set of human experiences, right? You could dream my dreams. You could feel, you know, what it's like to be the Dalai Lama. You could have any, everything's on the menu, right? You know, and if you and I both had such a device, I think we could have an increasingly intelligent and, and convergent conversation about what is good and what is worth wanting and, and what, is wor- what, what states of consciousness are compatible with our ongoing hopes for collaboration as a species and what are, what are not and what, are, what's, what states of consciousness are, are worth visiting only sometimes and what are worth inhabiting most of the time and what are worth never visiting again because they were intolerable, right? And we're very likely, you know, meandering toward a future of that kind where not only are we going to have to talk about the differences between ethical and aesthetic intuitions and priorities now, we're going to talk about the, the ethics and the, the wisdom or lack thereof in changing our intuitions. I mean, we're, we're going to be able to intrude on our own brains and, and say, well, do I, you know, how much do I want to value this thing that I currently value? Maybe I could just remove my preference for X, and would that be a good thing? I, mean, I would just say all we have is a rational fact-based discussion by which to guide us there, and it, and it can include the value we place on love and compassion and various other you know, pro-social states of happiness. I mean, we just, we, we, it's obvious that we value these things. It's obvious why we would value these things. I mean, on aesthetics, I mean, I'm not sure, for Shakespeare, you can obviously give quantitative things like he had an unusually large vocabulary and all that. Uh, but, but if you take painting, mm-hmm. th- then I think you'd find it rather hard to, to think of objective reasons why people like some particular style of painting more than others. I mean, people can analyze the differences, yeah. um, but um, differences of taste, you can't analyze further. There's yeah. some of that, but I, I would just argue that it's not a, a free-for-all either. I mean, I think there's, there's some ground to stand on, however swampish even there. But we'll, we'll have to leave that to a, a further time when, when AI has uh, augmented our brains and, and we can talk about these things on the, on the next level. But very good. And um, on the politics, I was tempted to say that your constitution is a bit of dogma. Yeah, yeah, yeah albeit occasionally <laughs> useful. Mm. Many of us would be eager to change it, except when we realize the people who would be changing it are so much scarier than the people 200 years ago that we, uh, we would decline to change it. Right, right, yes, yeah. and uh, and and you know the um, the gun laws and your and, and your penal system, we wouldn't mm-hmm. want to admire. Yeah, yeah. Well, You're good, Martin. It's a good. fantastic privilege to speak with you, and uh, thank you for taking the time. Uh, okay, well, th- thank you very much. Cheers. Bye. <laughs>